This episode contains depictions of violence that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. really excited we've gotten a lot of great feedback about that listeners episode because it was different the different format yeah now that we've opened it up to like yep. questions and also very exciting we have the we're also and gonna we haven't received any audio recordings yeah. yet but we're opening it up to audio recordings i think we'll get we'll get some by next time i know we already have a bunch of questions yeah that's really exciting i'm so excited for those two <laughs> yeah um I feel like it's been for, I don't know why, I feel like it's been forever since we did a listener's episode, but we did one last month, right? Yeah, we did. But before that, we skipped Yeah, I think it was the, it was the October one that we did Creepy Stories with Laura in lieu of listeners, right? Something like that. Or November. I don't remember. Yeah. Well, anywho, very, very cool format. Uh, We hope that people enjoy this new kind of version of listener stories it's very very similar obviously to our original format but we're just also opening up two questions as well as you guys sending in a recording of either your question or your story that you want to share but yeah speaking of creepy stories with laura Mm -hmm. though um we do have the extended cut of creepy stories with laura where laura reads a couple Mm -hmm. extra stories um that's exclusive to Patreon members. Yep. And we actually have, we we mentioned it at the very end of our last episode. <laughs> we, did. we should shout her out at the beginning. <laughs> give her her due. <laughs> so we're shouting out Bambi as our new newest yeah. uh, Patreon member. So welcome, hey, Bambi. Bambi. Thank you so much. You're awesome. And we are so excited to have you on board and for you to start enjoying all the bonus episodes that we got going as well as our exclusive content Uh, but yeah if anyone else is interested in becoming a member like bambi go to patreon.com slash the new witches anyways how's your how's your week been um kind of all over the place my dog was sick so i had to like literally take a day off work to watch her oh yeah how is she now she she ate something that had something in it that must have disagreed with her stomach. She's not the kind of dog that gets into stuff outside, mm. but she did. Um, and mm-hmm. so it, she had like a little bout of gastritis. So just, yeah, I oh, had to go baby. easy on her tummy for a while. But she's loving. She's getting like rice and, and chicken, which I think she prefers. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's probably like the the peak in the pit of my week. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm ready to have a kid now and oh. uh, have to stay home with them sick someday. Because that's literally what that felt like. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> How was yours? Um, it was it was good. Um, just kind of like one of those normal weeks where you're just chugging yeah. along at work. I did get though a fun surprise in the mail from Ooh. work, and I'll talk about this, you know, because it actually has to do a little bit. It's related to the story that I have for true crime. But Australia Day is coming up and they sent us like all these goodies from Australia. So they sent us like this 
this ginger beer and this chocolate biscuit called oh, a Tim yeah, yeah. Tam. And shout out to our Aussie listeners because I know we have mm-hmm. at least a couple um, that listen at least from time to time. But they gave all, us also like a packet, like one of those powder packets for Ooh. hot chocolate. And apparently, and then these like printed out instructions for a Tim Tam Slam. Cute. Which is like you bite either end of the Tim Tam biscuit and apparently it creates like a straw, like how you do with like red vines. Yeah. Like the the disgusting American version is red wine, uh, red vines with soda. You use the red yeah. vine as a straw. I never liked it. Well, we also uh, have but those I had a ton of friends that pirouettes. were pirouettes. Is that what they're called? Oh, yeah. Those pirouettes are yummy. And like milk. I did that when yeah. I was little. Yeah, those those are good. So yeah, apparently um you make hot chocolate. So they give us the hot chocolate to make it um and you're supposed to then bite either end and then use the Tim Tam as a straw, but because it's really wide, uh-huh. it's like big, you kind of have to like I guess like drink you're you're going to you're yeah. like a shot. So, yeah. Like you're yeah, you're just sucking it a bunch of it. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, um, but it looks delicious. I'm excited. And then they sent us like a cute little keychain of a kangaroo and with, That's with so our cute. branding on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, my work has sent us like a lot of gifts. I'm loving it. I'm still within my first year working at Vionic mm-hmm. and I absolutely love it. Um, I wish I worked at a place like that. Honestly, like I my last place, I won't say where I worked um, but because I don't want to like drag their name in the mud too much but I just wasn't Mm -hmm. really crazy about their work culture at all um it was a great great opportunity like don't get me wrong I did a lot of great work and I grew so much as a designer there and then that's where I um met my boss who then moved to Vionic and then I he recruited me over to oh that's awesome yeah so it was great he and he's been like my favorite favorite boss ever but um, and I loved my team as well. It was just kind of like the overall culture. It started improving a little bit before I left, but, you know, it just still wasn't where, like, where I needed it to be at, I guess. Yeah. Like, I just feel yeah. a lot more appreciated at Bionic and things are so much more, like, transparent. And that too. goes a long way, you know, where yeah. you yeah actually appreciate your employees, you get better work from them. Yeah, like I feel like they've invested in me and mm-hmm. it makes me, you know, I, it's just like the basic psychology of it, right? Like I feel more loyal yeah. to them and want to put more like better high quality work. Like I feel like my work is important. Yeah. Um, anywho. But yeah, so I thought that was really fun and cute. That was a nice little surprise. Um, and... uh. What else? I think that's pretty much it. Like, honestly, this week has been kind of like just chill. Yeah. Chill weeks are, are needed. Where it's oh, like for sure. Not necessarily anything exciting, but like nothing bad. Yeah. So fun. And I said that, that wasn't like, sarcastic, right? <laughs> I know. Honestly, I'm so sarcastic that sometimes I'm sarcastic even when I don't mean to be sarcastic. No, it actually was fun. <laughs> Graham's the exact same way. It's a Capricorn thing, isn't it? <laughs> Capricorns. 
he'll say nice things to me all the time and I'll be like, thanks. Wait, are you kidding? It's like that. <laughs> like, I'm like was that, that sarcastic? Chick. I'm like that chicken new girl that Nick dates in the first season. That's like so sarcastic, but he doesn't know <laughs> when she. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. As I texted you yesterday, my true crime is so wild. It is insane. Like I've heard this story before and then I got mm-hmm. really like I really dug into it deep into it. Um. Because I'd only heard, like, you know, a summary of this case. Right. Holy shit. And there's going to be sentences that I read in my story that are said with sincerity, but I will not be able to help laughing at. (laughs) (laughs) And this is true crime. (laughs) And this is true crime. There's just some sentences that are wild. (laughs) That I'm like, there's no other way that I can say this because it's true but it's so crazy (laughs) okay wait i'm opening it because you said you added pictures and i want to like i did yeah just for surprising effect don't don't read too much but um oh no i won't i won't okay but yeah so okay (laughs) (laughs) i just saw the nicknames that's it (laughs) um that's not even getting into it okay so All right, you know me. I always like to think of something that's kind of personal to me and then get inspired by a true crime. Well, this isn't super personal to me, but it kind of. So where I work, Vionic Shoes, our roots are Australian. (laughs) Like it was a person that created the orthotics, designed the orthotics in the shoes was Australian. Our current CEO and CFOs are Australian. And we used to even get Australia Day off, which Uh is actually coming up. It's on... Tuesday, um, the 26th, January 26th. Okay, cool. So it's coming up. And so I'm like, okay, I want to do a true crime from Australia. And then I just like looked up Australia, true crimes, whatever. And then I saw this woman's name come up and I'm like, oh, that looks really familiar. I feel like I kind of know what's going on with that case. Here's this true crime. And I feel like maybe if you're, you've been listening to true crime for a while, You'll already maybe anticipate what case I'm covering. But yeah, this one is the true crime case of murderer Catherine Knight, a.k.a. Cannibal Kathy and Australia's <laughs> Hannibal Lecter, which is wild because when I texted you and you're like, I have a feeling it has to do with cannibalism. Like, holy shit. I'm like, ah, trying to like throw you off the scent. I swear. (laughs) No, lately I've been getting like, I'll hear something. And then it's like this instant, like in my brain, there's something. And when you said that, like right away in my, like granted, it is true crime, juicy. But literally all I told you, all I told you was like, this is wild. It's juicy AF. And you're like, is it cannibalism? I feel like it has to do with cannibalism. (laughs) And I'm like, damn it. (laughs) But yes, um, wow, Cannibal Kathy. Cannibal Kathy. Yeah, and I. I'm gonna included... call my mom that. Oh my! Oh my God! Your mom's <laughs> Kathy. Kathy with a C, but yeah. Oh, okay. Poor. poor she Kathy. used to really hate like what was that? Chatty Kathy. It oh, was like a yeah. doll when she was little. Mm-hmm. Like I'll call her that. I'll wait for her to get annoyed, and I'll be like, "Well, I can use the other popular one, Cannibal Kathy." <laughs> and then you can tell her about this case. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I included pictures of her when she it. was rather, not young, young, but, like, you know, I think in her early 20s she was there. And then in her later mm-hmm. life, there's, like, two side-by-sides. So, yeah, so Contacts. Catherine, 
Yeah, Catherine Mary Knight was the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. I wonder why. And she was convicted of the murder of her partner, John Charles Thomas Price, in October 2001. Um, we're going to, you know, go through a list of all her paramours and how horrible she was to all of them. But we'll start from the very beginning, okay. which starts even before her birth. Oh. Because Kathy was... Oh, I'm already calling her Kathy. <laughs> Catherine was born from scandal. And she grew up in a really dysfunctional household. So, like, strap yourselves in. I'm going to spill some piping hot tea. Her mom, right, Barbara Ruffin, had been married to Jack Ruffin, and they lived in the town of Aberdeen in New South Wales, Hunter Valley. So they had four sons before Barbara started having an affair with Jack's friend and co-worker, Ken Knight. So right off the bat, very, very juicy stuff. Yeah. And on top of it, the Ruffins and the Knights, they were well-known families in Aberdeen. And Aberdeen's like a very conservative rural town. So the affair was like a huge scandal. And obviously after the news broke out, um, they got, there was like a big public backlash and it was just like so mortifying that Barbara and Ken were forced to move to uh, Maury. And I, I don't know if that's close to Aberdeen, but I think mm-hmm. it is. Um, but yeah, so I guess, you know, Barbara left her husband, went to live with her like partner, new partner, Ken. Um, I'm not super sure if they even got like divorced or anything. And she just like was separated living with Ken or right. something. I don't know. But nonetheless, so none of the boys initially, <clears throat> excuse me, none of the boys initially moved with um with Barbara and Ken. They stayed with their father. Okay. But I guess because of I don't know, like the having four boys for a single dad was too much. So he so um Jack Barbara's ex husband kept the two oldest yeah. sons and then shipped off the two youngest ones to live with an aunt in Sydney. Um so really like breaking up the family here. Uh but Barbara would actually go on to have four more children with Ken. This is a total of eight eight kids. She's a mom of eight. Four with Jack, now four with Ken, including twin girls who were born October 24th, 1955, in Tenterfield, New South Wales. And Catherine Knight was the younger of the twins. That's kind of insane. I, feel, I wonder how her twin feels about what Kath, Catherine's done. <laughs> but anyways... Jack Ruffin died in 1959, and then those two boys, the the older ones that stayed with him, Mm -hmm. they then moved in with their mom and the Knight family, making it a total of six kids now in the Ruffin slash Knight household, so a full house. And then some other interesting kind of background factoids about like the dynamics of what's going on with this family. Those are really weird people. I mean, (laughs) not weird, but they're just like... I don't know. There's a lot of tension about stuff. So yeah, Barbara's grandmother was apparently an indigenous Australian oh. from the Maori area oh. who had married an Irishman. Okay. So very like, you know, very um, ethnically diverse, loving it. And Barbara was really, really proud of that fact. And yeah. she considered herself an Aboriginal as well as her family as Aboriginals. Although they had to kind of 
even though she was proud of it, they also kind of kept trying to keep it a secret because obviously oh, there yeah. was considerable racism Especially in the area at, that at the time. time. It was bad. In the 50s, like, dude. There were some fucked um, up things that went yeah. on. Yeah. So it's like, I, you know, totally understand why they kind of yeah. kept it on the down low. And I don't know why exactly, but I kept coming across this sentence over and over again that apparently this was a source of tension for the children. The fact that Barbara, you know, wanted them to be considered aboriginals. Okay. Probably because maybe the children didn't identify as aboriginals. At that point, they were pretty, for lack of a better term, like whitewashed. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so for whatever reason, source of tension. Mm -hmm. And really, like, apart from her twin, the only person Catherine was close to was her uncle Oscar. And um, on her dad's side. And apparently he was a champion horseman. So go Uncle Oscar. Um, Unfortunately, he committed suicide in 1969. She was absolutely devastated. And she actually, even to this day... Um, continues to say that his ghost visits her. Okay. Which I think is really sweet. Yeah. But also, I don't know. You'll see how um, Catherine's grip on reality is a bit, you know. So this could have been like a precursor to a mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but yeah, so in the same year that Oscar Knight uh, committed suicide, 1969, the family moved back to Aberdeen. Okay. So now they're back to kind of where it all started. So that's kind of like the family history. Now let's get into even more fucked upness. Like this is heavy, heavy. Here is the reason why we put our trigger warnings. So, yay. <laughs> um, Catherine's father, Ken, was an abusive alcoholic. He was extremely violent and used intimidation. And oh, this is intense. Raped Catherine's mother up to 10 times a day. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, this next part, I don't like fully blame Barbara because I'm sure in an abusive, horrible relationship like this, she only really had her children to turn to. Yeah. But Barbara's sense of a healthy relationship was pretty much, you know, what healthy relationships and, and it really rubbed off on Catherine. Barbara would tell her daughters really intimate, like, graphic details of her sex life and how much she hated oh. sex and men. That's going to fuck a kid up. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, um, I'm just playing with my Barbie and I really yeah. don't need this right now, Mom. <laughs> um, yikes. So later in life, Catherine would recall one time that she was, like, complaining to her mom, saying, like, oh, my, this partner so-and-so, he wants me to participate in this, like, sexual act, and I really don't want to. And her mom's response was, quote, and a quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Oh, this poor family. And it's, like, (sighs) headed for disaster. Absolutely. Like, they're already going through, like, disaster and despair. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Catherine claims she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family as well, um, though not by her father, and that it can mm-hmm. it started very early on in life and continued until she was about eleven or so. Um, with like in speaking with psychiatrists, they kind of doubt some of the details of her stories that she says about this abuse, but they do accept the fact that she was abused because pretty much everyone in her family confirmed it which makes it worse because that means that they all knew that it indeed happened right 
Um, yeah. So this is one of the Maybe sentences. Maybe they don't want to corroborate. Cor- 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 the details. Corroborate? No. Cor- commiserate? Yes. No. I don't know. <laughs> Words. Okay. This cor- Like they know the details, but they don't want to admit it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. This is, okay, so here's one okay. of the sentences that is absolutely, <laughs> that is bonkers. All right. Let me get this with a straight face. Catherine was by all accounts a pleasant girl who experienced uncontrollably murderous rages in response to minor upsets. Oh. Okay. <laughs> but otherwise a really pleasant girl. <laughs> Mental illness. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like. Something going on there. You'll see like her. As we go through her childhood, she's very like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. So she she yeah. attended uh, Moselbrook High School and she was known as a loner and was remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over small children. She assaulted mm-hmm. at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have actually acted in self-defense because she was the one that actually initiated the attack. Oh, dang. Okay. Um, by contrast, when she was not in a murderous rage, Catherine was a model student and actually even often got re- awards for her good behavior. Would this be like borderline personality I'm disorder? I'm thinking, honestly. With with some other things? So, there's something going on because I, I think especially mm-hmm. since these people are still awarding her for good behavior and then they're like excusing her, not excusing her, but these... They're kind of like even disassociating her from like when she's fucking angry and, 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 you know, going through a rage stuff. So I think because she's in such extremes that that shows kind of. Is it, you know, bipolar is a borderline personality. I know there's a new term for it, but borderline personality disorder or like there's just there's just something there. Oh, is there? There's something there. It's never determined, but she's definitely not. I just have my speculations, but they never really get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. So Catherine actually dropped out of school at 15 without having learned to read or write, unfortunately. Oh, wow. Yeah, she just kind of slipped through the cracks. So even though she was smart and a model student, she kind of mm-hmm. still wasn't, you know, she was like a smart enough kid, but like just kind of slipped through the cracks there. Um but she did gain employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. And then about a year later, she left that job and then started what she referred to as her dream job, which guess what her dream job was? Butcher. Very close. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, pretty much. Um, cutting up offal at the local slaughterhouse. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Processing facility or abattoir, if you will. Um, I just learned that, that that's like a fancy <laughs> name for a slaughterhouse, an abattoir. So she actually <laughs> really quickly rose through the ranks. She was promoted to boning and she was even given her own set of like fancy butcher knives. Oh, but she loved that. Oh, she loved it. She loved it so much that she hung her knives above her bed at home so that they would, like quote unquote, would always be handy if I needed them which is a habit that she continued in every single place that she lived until she was incarcerated. Oh, like hung on the wall. Yeah, like hung on the wall. I'm thinking like a baby mobile. (laughs) (laughs) So artistic. (laughs) 
<laughs> Clearly, I have baby on the mind. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, anyway. But yeah, no, she hung them no, on the I wall. I think they did that in the Adams family. Oh, I can see that. Which actually question, did she have like a set of decorative knives or did she like take them down every single day when she went off to work? It's a lot of work. But anyways. Yeah, so she I was always I can't imagine like, they'd be decorative. Well, okay. <laughs> We're going to talk more about her home decor choices later. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah, so okay. on to her first you know, well-known, I guess, paramour was uh, David, enter David Kellett. And there's going to be a couple of Davids. So this is oh, the first David, picture. David Kellett. And Catherine oh, first he met looks like he's him. got thick hair. I know. What a mop of hair, right? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they met in the, in the 1970s. Okay. And she's taller than him. Um, yes. Both in stature and personality. Really, like truly. So they, um, so okay. This David guy was known as like a really, really hard drinker, and he was actually Catherine's coworker. So they met through the slaughterhouse, and they met in 1973. And Catherine completely dominated him. She was absolutely okay. the dominant yeah. one in the relationship. If David got into a fight, Catherine would step in and back him up with her fists without fail. Um. And in Aberdeen, she was renowned for offering armed combat to anyone who upset her. So this girl has a really short fuse and she loves violence. I mean, she grew up with a lot of violence, right? And it kind of sounds like, right, it it sounds like she's trying to take on the role she wished someone took on for her. Ooh, yeah, perhaps of like protector. She's like, well, I'm going to just protect myself. And again, with like the knives hanging above her wall, she's like always on the like defensive because she's like in case i ever need them yeah yeah um so Catherine and david kellett actually got married in 1974 at her request which no problem with that i actually loving her this request. whole feminist <laughs> yeah this whole feminist story in in her um you know she's not a great person but i am loving how she's kind of taking charge of things um, but yeah, so the couple even mm-hmm. arrived at the service on her motorcycle with a very intoxicated David Kellett sitting in the back. Interesting. Um, honestly, at this point, Catherine is just like a badass fucking bitch. Right. Which she doesn't look like she would Not be. Not crazy about the fact that she was a bully. Right. She kind of <laughs> in this picture when she's younger, she's like a lot more um, like willowy. Yeah. Um. And she just kind of, she looks really sweet in this picture. Right. Um, but yeah, she has a really uh, dark, fiery side if you get mm-hmm. on her bad side. And as soon as they arrived, Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave David Kellett some advice. And this is a quote. So, um, Bar- Mama Barbara's voice. I'm not going to do an Aussie accent. I won't, I won't offend people like that. <laughs> I'm going to spare y'all. You better watch this one or she'll (laughs) fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. And she also said, she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. And that's what she told David before (laughs) the service, the wedding ceremony started. (laughs) 
She should have also added, you know, her family may have done some, have been a part of the loosening of the screws, but you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Whew, okay, so we're still on the day of the wedding. So on the wedding night, Catherine tried to strangle David Kellett. Not the best start of their marriage. And the reasoning Catherine gave was because he fell asleep after only having intercourse with her three times. How dare he? She's got, she's like, I got knees. That's not funny. I got <laughs> knees. Fucking wake up. Oh, man. Oh, okay. my God. Yeah. She's, this is where, okay, we're, we're going down. We're snowballing here. All right. Picking up some steam here. Yep. 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 Okay. The marriage okay. was very violent and abusive, as you can imagine. On mm-hmm. one occasion, a heavily pregnant Catherine burned all oh. of David Kellett's clothing and shoes yeah a few times um she's also very fertile myrtle let me tell you um but yeah so she's super super pregnant and she burns all of kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan and she did this because david kellett had been at a darts competition and he was like a super dartsman he had even made the finals and then he arrived late at home and she did not like that Okay. In fear for his life, Kellett fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge Catherine, but she put on her charm, and she basically manipulated Kellett into dropping the charges. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, okay, this is where, oh, God, I feel so bad for her children. Just anyone that she kind of pretty much crosses paths with, does not end well for them. Mm-hmm. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left her for another woman and moved to Queensland, apparently unable to cope with Catherine's possessive violent behavior, which I don't blame him for. Right. The next day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in a pram down the main street, violently throwing the pram from side to side. Catherine was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After she was released... I know, I'm like, I I think you need to look more into it. I think it's a little more than postnatal depression. Um, After being released, Catherine placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due, then stole an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill several people. A man known in the district as Old Ted, who was foraging near the railway line, found and rescued Melissa by all accounts only minutes before the train passed. Oh, thank God. Knight was arrested and again taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but apparently recovered and signed herself out the following day. And I'm like, people, how have you allowed her to check herself out after a day? Like, wasn't 5150 a thing back then in Australia? Right. Well, Maybe do they it wasn't. even have a fifty-one fifty? They might have a different sort of. Um, yeah, like I'm sure thing. there's like a name for it, but um, I wonder if, if maybe it just did not exist in this yeah. time period in the seventies. Um, because yikes! Like how Big after yikes. she does all that, <laughs> after she right. does, all, she put her baby on a railway line. So much shit. How is, happening. is that not like? Oh, we're charging you for attempted murder. Yeah. I guess they, I don't know if it was like, well, she's just not in her right mind or whatever, but like she checked herself out the next day. I just, I cannot. Yeah. (sighs) 
Um, this was followed a few days later with Catherine slashing the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded that this woman drive her to Queensland to find her husband, David Kellett. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Catherine had taken a little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. Oh my god. (laughs) This is another (laughs) sentence where I'm like, what is happening? She was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms. (laughs) 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 Which, like, question, if Australian police can disarm a knife, or uh, disarm a woman holding a knife to a little boy. Let what are these techniques? Teach them to all the American police because yeah. honestly, please. Just need <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> oh my god. I like did they bring the brooms? Were the brooms just like, you know, in, how many like, brooms? How many were brooms? Were they the push brooms or were they like the standard Well, cuz like there's the Japanese police that they literally take basically like a big foam mattress topper and they just like burrito people. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, a legit thing that they are trained to do to, like, disarm and pacify, you know, belligerent people. Right. Um, yeah, our police system has Wild. a few things to learn from the international police systems. Because <laughs> that's impressive. Yes, they do. Anyways, she was admitted to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital after that. And Catherine told the nurses that her plan was... That she was going to kill the mechanic at that service station with her when where her and that woman stopped because he was the one that had repaired David Kellett's car, which had allowed him to leave, which like, okay, displacing blame much. Oh, right. And then after she would do that, then she was going to plan to go into Queensland and then kill both her husband and his mother. Okay. So that was her evil master plan. Um, And then when police informed David Kellett of the incident, he left his girlfriend. So apparently he had gotten, you know, a girlfriend since moving to Queensland. And he brought his mother Mm -hmm. along, too. And they both moved back to Aberdeen to support Catherine. What? This is this woman. Knows how to prey on like just like just like any abuser knows how to prey on codependent people right or to at least foster codependent yeah. relationships because mm-hmm. if i would have heard that the last thing i would do what w- is move back to the town that person lives and support them yeah and I bring mean, my mother restraining along restraining order something along those lines change our yeah. names <laughs> i don't know yeah fuck um yeah so Catherine was released uh, from the psychiatric hospital on August 9th, 1976, and into the care of her mother-in-law and obviously her husband, David Kellett. And then they moved to Wood- Woodridge, which is a suburb area of Brisbane. Wait, where's their kid? I mean, I guess Melissa's back with them or something. Okay. I think Melissa was with family while <laughs> Catherine was in hospital. Okay. And, uh, yeah, not super sure. That's what I'm just assuming, okay, but okay. I can't say that for sure. Right. Um, but yeah, so they moved to the suburb of Brisbane and then Catherine gets a job at Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. Still seems like a weird choice. On March 6, 1980, Catherine and David had another daughter, Natasha Marie. So he's not just caring for her. They start fucking again. They're like 
back together. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. And so that's, you know, 1984 years later, um, 1984, Catherine leaves David Kellett and moves in first with her parents back in Aberdeen and then to a rented house in nearby Mus- Muswellbrook. Okay. Oh my gosh, that word. Muswellbrook. Um, although she returned to work at the slaughterhouse, she injured her back the following year and went on a disability leave, or, and she got like a pension okay. for it. No longer needing to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. So things are working out pretty well for her, uh, despite all this yeah. bullshit. Um, enter the second David, David Saunders. In 1986, 31-year-old Catherine met 38-year-old minor David Saunders. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he kept his old apartment. Okay. So he's got a backup. Right. Thank God. Uh, Catherine soon became possessive and jealous, obvi, like we mm-hmm. all saw that coming, um, about pretty much everything about what he did, um, you know, where he was at when, when she was not around, like she was super, super suspicious of him all the time and she would very often just throw him out and it was a really unhealthy cycle. Right. So they would like, she would get possessive, they would fight, she would throw him out, he would move back to his apartment and then she would eventually like follow and beg for him to come back it would just happen over and over and over again in may 1987 she cut the throat of david saunders's uh two-month-old puppy (gasps) in front of him for no more oh my god for no reason other than as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan she loves her frying pans the puppy the puppy so the puppy didn't make it, I'm guessing. Oh, my God. No, no, puppy. no. She killed that two-month-old puppy. Oh, okay. And then again, injured him with a... Fr- she loves the frying pants, honestly. Right. This is like a much more murderous, dangerous Rapunzel. Yes, very much so. Yeah, okay. So in June 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah which prompted David Saunders to put a deposit on a house, which Catherine paid off when her workers' compensation came through in 1989. (laughs) Catherine decorated the house throughout with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. No space, including the ceilings, was left uncovered. Some of that... I can understand, especially in Australia. Yes. Rusty animal traps. Old boots. And like. Leather jackets. Nothing was left uncovered. Like that's. Yeah, like all the walls and the ceilings were completely covered in this stuff as decoration. Jeez. (laughs) Yeah. Um, After an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors, he moved back to Scone, which is the town where his original apartment was. Mm -hmm. But when he later returned home, found that she had cut up all of his clothes. Saunders took long service leave and went into hiding. 
Good for him. Which, good for him. Yes. Catherine yeah. tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was. And several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Catherine had gone to the police and told them that she was afraid of him. Okay. And they, that was his yeah. mistake. He should have called the police on her. Yeah. Like, what? why wasn't that done so much sooner? So, yeah. So, they, the police issued her with an apprehended violence order against him, which I think is, like... A restraining order? Right. But that's kind of weird that they would just hand that out without any proof. I mean, unless she... I don't know what she tried to come up with. Well, it seems like she's a master manipulator, too. Right. She's having these really tumultuous, violent relationships, and still they, like, often forgive her, come back to her, like, the cycle. She... Yeah. I'm sure she was a master manipulator. All right, next, and this one is like a very quick one. This is John Chillingworth, her third known paramour. In 1990, Catherine became pregnant by a 43-year-old former slaughterhouse co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy they named Eric. So now this is four kids. Okay. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time, John Price. Which I think is kind of funny because she dates a David and then a David and then she dates a John and then a John. Yeah. <laughs> is that just like an Australian thing? <laughs> I don't, are there a lot of like Davids and Johns out there in Australia? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, um, John Price would pay uh, the biggest price for dating oh, Catherine. And you can okay. see a picture of John oh, and... Yes. And then Catherine, how she looked at, like, at the time. Oh, she, she looks scary John. now. Right? She was, like... Uh, Something in her yeah. eyes is very unsettling. Unhinged. hmm hmm Yes. So, John Pricey Price, I guess he was nicknamed Pricey, uh, was the father of three children when Catherine Knight had an affair with him. Reputedly a terrific blo- uh, I'm gonna okay. Let me, I'm gonna try it, guys. A terrific bloke. I don't know. I feel like that was more British. I'm sorry. Um, a terrific bloke, and he was liked by everyone who knew him. Um, his own marriage had ended in 1988. While his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the two older children lived with him. Price was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation, and she moved into his house in 1995, which is like, John, what the fuck? That, you, red flag. Big red, red one. Flag. You knew it. But now I'm thinking, like, is this guy so terrific that he's like, maybe he was like a pushover or something? Because, again, she I preys on codependent pushover people. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah. how her relationships work. <laughs> um, right. So it just boggles my mind that he would be well aware of her history and still allow her to live in his home with his two children. Mm-hmm. Irresponsible, John. But that doesn't yeah. mean you deserve what you got. Right. Ironically, his children really liked her. Um, he was also making a lot of money working in the local mines. And apart from the violent arguments he would have with Catherine, he described that time with her as... Life was a bunch of roses. Oh, interesting. So he, yeah, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe he's. It's like a honeymoon period, or 
you know, a lot of good things are happening in his life, but, you know, here and there, yeah. they just have, like, a very extreme, violent argument. Yeah. All right. But anyway, in 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her. Because remember, Catherine likes to marry people upon her request. Right. Which is totally fine. Um, but her reaction is uh, that she videotaped items he had stolen from work and sent the tape to his boss as like revenge for not accepting her hand in marriage. Oh, God. Yeah, and again, he was making a ton of money. Okay. He was super happy with his job. Mm-hmm. And although the items were out-of-date medical kits that he had scavenged from the company Garbage Dump, Price was fired from the job he had held for 17 years. This woman is a menace. She's worse. She's like, Absolutely. honestly, everyone that she comes across, they're just their lives are just like ruined. Maybe except for like John Chillingworth. The worst thing that she did to him was having an affair with, yeah. you know, having an affair on him yeah um that same day that he got fired he kicked Catherine out and she returned to her own home while news of what she had done spread throughout the town the salacious (laughs) gossip Uh, a few months later john price restarted the relationship (laughs) oh my god i know it's like so frustrating um, although he now refused to allow her to move in with him. So he's like, okay, let's do this, but you can't live with me anymore. Let's have some distance, I guess. If you have to yeah. do that, if you decide to restart a relationship with someone, but it has to start with, well, we're not moving in again quite yet. Don't just don't don't restart yeah. it. Just it doesn't. Don't. It doesn't bode well. Just don't. So the yeah, no. the fighting between Catherine and John became even more frequent and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together. Okay. Which perhaps goes to show how maybe he was a different person when he was with Catherine or, you know, people can only give you so much advice and try to help you before they just kind of give up on you. People have boundaries. They're not going to stay friendly. Yeah. Like, and that's that's hard. I mean, we've talked a little bit about you know, my coworker and things like that. Um yeah. You can only do so much before you have to be like, I can't fucking, I can't be around this. I can't keep hearing about this person that you say is so wonderful after they've done some horrible things to you. It's very, very infuriating. It's like, I feel like everyone has had that experience where they had a family member or a friend or somebody that they knew that you care about and that they're dating this person and they just don't read the signs. It's just, it's very, very, you know. And it's so sad because John Price really had everything going for him at the time of his, you know, that Catherine Mm -hmm. came into the picture and she just burnt everything up. Yep. And now we move on to the murder. In February 2000, a series of assaults on John culminated with Catherine stabbing John in the chest. But he survived that. At this point, though, he was finally fed up. He kicked her out of his house And on February 29th, he took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. Okay. Again, people have their boundaries. Some just don't hit that boundary until way later. Way, way later. Yeah. That afternoon, John told his coworkers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Catherine had killed him. Oh, 
Yeah. He knew. He knew. They pleaded with him to not go home. But he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he did not. Like, he's like, well, my kids are at home. I have to go see them and, and protect them and stuff. John arrived home to find Catherine, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. That was a weird sentence. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. So he went home. The kids weren't there. And he somehow found out that, I guess... She Catherine had told that. the children, yeah, Catherine had arranged for the kids to be away from home to go on a sleepover with friends. It was very interesting. Goes to show how, like, the kids saw her kind of as a stepmom if they kind of took that yeah. at face value. Like, yeah, let's go. Um, He then spent the evening with his neighbors and he went to bed that night at around 11 p.m. Okay, wait. You have a restraining order against a woman. You find out that she orchestrated to have your kids go on sleepovers. Why are you not picking your kids up and going somewhere completely different? I would think like, oh, this is her plan to kill. This would be her plan to kill me. She's taking the kids away. Right. So that it's just us two. I just, this guy, these men, I'm just, come on. Come on. So, yeah, so... He hangs out with neighbors. He goes to bed at 11 p.m. Rewind a little bit. So earlier that day, on Catherine's side of of the story about what happened that Mm day, she went and bought some new black lingerie. And then she did this really weird thing where she started videotaping all of her children while making these comments on, like, the things that she wanted them to have or whatever and it's oh. it was later in like investigation interpreted that she was making like a crude version of a will interesting so so they're like okay so she's you know acting very strange she acted yeah. very strangely Catherine later arrived at john price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching tv for a few minutes before having a shower she then woke John and they had sex after which he fell asleep. The fuck? Uh, <laughs> listen, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I feel like we need an anthology of true crime stories involving relationships like these. And mm-hmm. everyone needs to read them who is dating. To just know that, like, these are extreme things, but at the same time, like, you never know when it's going to be you. Just know. Yeah. These are all the red flags. Honestly, I just, I'm unable to even. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so they had sex. I'm sure she was wearing, you know, woke him up with her new black lingerie, and then he falls asleep. Oh, okay. Here we go, guys. Strap yourselves in. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor became concerned that John's car was still in the driveway because apparently he usually had left, would would leave for work earlier than that. Mm -hmm. And when John did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on John's bedroom window to wake him up. But after noticing through the window some blood on the front, oh, sorry. Not through the window. Uh, But after noticing blood on the front door, they alerted the police who arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, police found his body with Catherine comatose from taking a large number of pills, which was a suicide attempt, which is why Mm -hmm. she made that will the day before. 
mm-hmm. well, quote unquote, will. I don't think that constitutes right. officially as a will. Um, so very premeditated. She had stabbed Price with a butcher knife while he was sleeping. According to the blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Catherine chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or probably was dragged back into the home where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Catherine went into Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from John's ATM account. Okay. John's autopsy... This is, so that's everything that the investigation discovered. John's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his body and many of the wounds extending into vital organs. Several hours after John had died, Catherine skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook on the architrave of, I, I think that's an archway, of a door to okay. the lounge room of the home. She then decapitated John and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy into two settings at the dinner table. Along with notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of John's children on it, pretty much she was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. Oh my god. And um, if you look on page eight is the photo of the plate of food with the oh notes. Oh god. Yeah. Um, the oh, first photo with like uh-huh. The first photo with like the pot of food. I'm not sure that's actually from the crime scene. I was gonna say it actually looks kind of good. Yeah. But I like it found that in match the second. This one. photo kept coming up over and over again with articles about mm-hmm. this case, but it doesn't match what's described <laughs> that actually right. was found. So I'm gonna yeah, so but I have verified that the second photo with the plates that is truly right. from the crime scene. Okay. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, and it is speculated Catherine had attempted to eat it but could not, and this has been put forward in support of her claim that she has no memory of the crime. Okay. So I think when they, um, when they like, analyzed the, the food mm-hmm. that they had found in the back, it actually was, like, partially digested. So it's thought that she, like, ate it herself. And then threw up. And then couldn't keep it down. Like, she was too sickened and threw, threw that food up. Mm-hmm. as well as the rest of like the the meal yeah um john's head was found in a pot with vegetables the pot was still warm estimated to be at about 40 to 50 degrees celsius which you know here is uh, 104 to 122 degrees fahrenheit okay so it indicated that the cooking had taken place in the early morning Sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with the legs crossed. Just like holding, you know, like the, the liter bottle thing. Mm-hmm. Just weird. Yeah. Um, this was claimed in court to be an act of defilement, just demonstrating Catherine's contempt for John Price. Catherine had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of Price, blood-stained and covered with small pieces of flesh. The note read, um, Time you got back, Jonathan, for 
wrapping, really raping. She there's a lot of misspelling, so I'm just going to read it okay. as it's supposed to be read. But um, I'll bold it so you can see kind of like how it's misspelled. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Time you got back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck for Ross for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. The accusations in the note were found to be groundless. So pretty much she's saying like as if. I think in her murder plot, she's like, I'm going to murder him, but I'm going to make these false claims to make it seem like I am mm-hmm. uh, justified in my actions. Or maybe um, she really lost it enough that in her mind, she thought something happened. Constantly oh, absolutely. Like. Oh, who knows? Absolutely. It it's it could totally be true. Um in court, like Catherine's not much help. Like she's kind of she doesn't remember much, which I think shows that she might have some sort of split split personality, something or other. Mm-hmm. She just she was like in a fugue state. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so if we look at this note, so time you got back Jonathan for raping my daughter. You to Beck, which is Price's daughter, for Ross, for little John, who is also um, John Price's son. Mm-hmm. Now play with little John's dick. John like it Price. doesn't even so, make sense. Yeah, it's very like nonsensical. It's not written very well. Yeah, not just for the misspellings, but just like the sense of it. It's just kind of yeah. weird. So in the trial. Um, Catherine's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected and she was arraigned on February 2nd, 2001 on the charge of murdering John Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty, (laughs) which, um, interesting. Her trial was initially fixed for July 23rd, 2001, but was adjourned due to her counsel's illness and it was refixed for October 15th, 2001. So I guess like her lawyer was just sick or something. Yeah. When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out, after which the jury was impaneled. Catherine's attorneys then spoke to the judge who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea from not guilty to guilty. And the jury was dismissed. Okay. Justice O'Keefe. Yeah. This woman is like back and forth. Um, Justice O'Keefe then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to, to determine if Catherine was, un, uh, if she understood the consequences mm-hmm. of the guilty plea and to see if she was basically in a mental state, like if she was fit to even make yeah. a plea for herself. Right. Catherine's legal team had planned to defend her by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her sane. I'm just thinking maybe they didn't quite understand all the different mental illnesses back then, that that's what they were sticking with and not, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 2001, um, like we know a lot more than we used to at that point, but... It just seems weird that they weren't asking of, for more assessments or yeah, I don't know exactly. It's just kind of it seems like there's just something missing. Yeah, um, but it is interesting. So it's like if the psychiatrist did consider her sane, 
no wonder she got the sentence that she did. Like if she was being presented as a sane person, but she did all these things. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. But I don't believe that she was fully sane. Like it doesn't. No. It doesn't fully add up. I'm not saying that she's obviously innocent and she didn't deserve right. her sentence. But, you know, I think that uh, the the trial fell short on like looking into her mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, like why she switched it. And despite giving mm-hmm. it, Catherine still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. She, had, she showed no remorse. At the sentencing hearing, Catherine's lawyers requested that she be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. And when Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation that occurred in the, in the murder, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8th, 2001, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Catherine Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked, quote, Mm. never to be released. This is the first time that this had happened um, and had been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Mm Mm-hmm. In June 2006, Catherine Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. But Justices Peter McClellan and Michael Adams and Megan Lantham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal in September, with Justice McClellan writing in his judgment, quote, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society, unquote. Oh, yeah. And that is Catherine Knight, uh, Cannibal Kathy. And if you scroll to the next page, you can see kind of Kathy's progression, age progression and what she looks like. um, Not today, but like more modern day. I mean, I feel like this kind of goes to show in a very extreme way. And obviously this is a different country, but how much our system fails us. Like, mm-hmm. there's not like people aren't getting the mental health help that they need because it is very like you have to go yourself and say, I think I have something wrong with me, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of like, oh, you tried to kill your baby twice. You did this. You did that. And OK, cool. We're, you're fine. And then you go on to commit this horrible murder. We just look at it as you committed a crime, not wow. What did we miss? How did we not help you? From getting to this point. Yeah. Her um, her odds were stacked up from the beginning. Yeah. Really with like the family that she came from. I mean, other people have risen above that, you know, gone through similar things and risen above it. Um, but if she had like such severe mental illness, which I believe she did, mm-hmm. um, you know, she obviously did not. She didn't get any psychiatric help, it seems, until... After her first daughter, when she right. was admitted into St. Elmo's um, for, like, doing the thing where she was pushing the pram side to side. Mm-hmm. And um, I it doubt that they even dug up into her past history mm-hmm. and, like, what she grew up with with stuff. Because only being diagnosed with prenatal or postnatal depression. And that's it. Like, that's not what. Yeah. That's not. That's not it. <laughs> She was failed. She was failed big time. Yes, on all accounts, um, by her mom, by her siblings, by 
Yeah. I don't know. Her teachers, the people at her school. No kid is a bully just because they enjoy being a bully. There's something going on. For sure. Yeah. Nonetheless, she um, committed a really, really horrible, horrible crime. Like, right. I think the the nature of the crime reads all over that she is mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yikes! Yeah, that this whole case and the story of of Catherine Knight is insane. To for lack of a better word, it's just like it's so. It's it's like a lot. It's just so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's absolutely just like so much. Yeah. So, yay! Happy Australia Day. <laughs> Uh, anywho, people will okay. forever I think link we're ready for- Australia Day with <laughs> Campbell oh, <no>. Kathy. <laughs> oh no, yeah. But yes, let's well, uh, <clears throat> move on to something not about Kathy. <laughs> we better not Kathy. Um, not about death. Uh, there's like a tiny bit of death in this. I think, kind of. Hmm. Um. So I, I, I came up with my subject a while ago, just like for fun. I did it and was like, mm-hmm. maybe someday I'll use this. And, you know, when we were talking about our listener stories and like, you know, we always tell people like, give it, give you, give, go back Laura. We always give our listeners some ideas on what we want to hear about or what they can share. Mm-hmm. We don't really get anything related to aliens. And like, I want aliens. I want to hear and talk about aliens, which to me, they absolutely fall into the realm of paranormal. But I think it's also very sciencey. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of this really interesting bridge. Um, And as years have gone on, it's kind of become more and more apparent that, you know, things are visiting us. Even the government has finally been like, yeah, all those videos that have been released, we can admit we don't know what those are. Those aren't us. Wow. Yeah. So, and I think with everything going on in the world, it's time we talk about aliens. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm so excited. So. I'm so excited. Rather than talk about just like one alien story, what I wanted to cover are all the different types of close encounters. Um. Partially just so that people know, and partially maybe it will help inspire a future listener story. If maybe you're like, Ooh. oh shit, yeah. Um, so I'm going to go over what each kind is. Everyone knows Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? That was a fantastic mm-hmm. movie. There was the movie The Fourth Kind, which was so creepy. Um, and then <laughs> there's that new documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which is a very interesting watch. And I'll just leave it at as interesting. Um, so each kind also, there's like a little bit of a story to kind of explain what that means. So an alien close encounter of the first kind is described as visual sightings of an unidentified flying object. And sometimes it kind of ends there. Um, but it can also mean Mm -hmm. that it's seemingly less than 500 feet away that also shows an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. So that's kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but really it's just seeing a fucking UFO. 
something unexplained. Okay, got it. So rather cool. than like one story of this, I kind of wanted to show like a timeline, which is just like nuts. So four, 1440 BC in ancient Egypt, according to the disputed Thule papyrus, the scribes of the pharaoh um, Tutmosis III reported that quote, fiery discs were encountered floating over the skies. In 76 BC in the Roman Republic, according to Pliny the Elder, a spark fell from a star and grew as it descended until it appeared to be the size of the moon. It then ascended back up to the heavens and was transformed into a light. 74 BC in the Roman Republic, according to Plutarch, a Roman army, um, commanded by Lucullus, was about to begin a battle. And um, all of a sudden, the sky burst asunder and a huge... Uh, sorry, this is in quotes. Um, the sky burst asunder and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between the two armies. In shape, it was most like a wine jar and in color like molten silver. And Plutarch reports the shape of the object as like a wine jar, like I said, um, pithos. Mm-hmm. So then I'm going to fast, I've fast forwarded, you know, a ways on 1561 in Germany, residents of Nuremberg saw what they described as an aerial battle, followed by the appearance of a large black triangular object and then a large crash outside the city. The broadsheet claims that witnesses observed hundreds of spheres, cylinders, and other odd-shaped objects that moved erratically overhead. What the fuck else would that be? That's you know, the, the cylinders and like, yeah, this that you know, other than like the disc you often see in these UFO stories, like the cigar shape, the cylind- mm-hmm. cylinder shape, triangles. Like that's another really. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's it's that to me was wild to hear like an aerial battle. Um, Wow. In 1803 in Japan, um, it's around February or March 22nd or so, local fishermen reportedly saw a vessel drifting in close by waters. They say when they investigated it, a beautiful young woman they described as having red and white hair and dressed in strange clothes appeared. The Hmm. fishermen claimed she held a square box that, quote, no one was allowed to touch. And she spoke to them in a language they never heard before. Some UFO believers that this story was a credible document of a close encounter of the third kind, which I can explain later. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then my last example of a first encounter is in the 1940s. Um, it's called the World War II theater. So small metallic spheres and colorful balls of light repeat were repeatedly spotted and occasionally photographed worldwide by bomber crews and these spheres are what we call foo fighters and how the band got their name (laughs) (gasps) that's cool yeah so when you hear of world war ii and people talking about foo fighters because i used to hear it but i didn't know what it was it's these spheres Mm -hmm. that no one knew what they were they couldn't yeah wow yeah so i think most people probably might have like have seen ufos but that's considered a close encounter of the first kind so if you've seen one you've had a close encounter Ooh, i think it's just like oh, it's special. <laughs> that's cool yeah 
So a close encounter of the second kind is a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat, and discomfort in the witness, or some physical traits like impressions in the ground, um, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation, like I think crop circles would be a mm-hmm. close encounter of the second kind. So the story for this one takes place in 1967 in Falcon Lake, Manitoba. So okay. Stephen uh, Michalak, 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 Michalak. He was an amateur geologist who often wandered into the wilderness to prospect for quartz and silver. On May 20th, while he was near a vein of quartz, he was startled by a gaggle of nearby geese that erupted into a clattering of honks, which I just love that. I think that's adorable. Oh. He looked up <laughs> Honk. and saw <laughs> He saw two cigar-shaped objects with a reddish glow hovering about 45 meters away. One descended yeah, the cigar and shapes. landed Right? Super that's they're a thing. One descended and landed on a flat section of rock and took on more of a disc shape. The other remained in the air for a few minutes before flying oh. off. Believing it to be a secret U.S. military experimental craft, Stephen sat back and sketched it over the next half hour. Then he decided to approach, later recalling the warm air and smell of sulfur as he got closer as well as a whirring sound of motors and a hissing of air. He also noted a door opened on the side with bright lights inside, and he said he heard voices muffled by the sounds of the craft. He called out, offering mechanical help to the, quote, Yankee boys if they needed it. The voices went quiet and did not answer, so he tried in his native Polish. Oh. And then in Russian, thinking, oh. and these times mm-hmm. maybe he thought that's who it was. Um, finally, he asked if they needed help in German, covering all his bases. Wow, he's so multilingual. <laughs> I know. But still no <laughs> response. So he went closer and noted the smooth metal of the ship with no seams. He then looked Whoa. into the bright doorway. Pulling on the welding goggles he used to protect his eyes um, when he, like, would chip at the rocks during prospecting. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. inside, he saw light beams and panels of various colored flashing lights, but could not see anyone or any living thing inside whatsoever. When he stepped away, three panels slid across the door opening and sealed it. He reached to touch the craft which he said melted his fingertips or the fingertips of the glove that he was wearing. The craft then began to turn counterclockwise. And Stephen says he noticed a panel that contained a grid of holes. Shortly afterward, he was struck in the chest by a blast of air or gas that pushed him backward and set his shirt and hat ablaze. He ripped away the burning garments as the craft lifted off and flew away. Disoriented and nauseous, Stephen stumbled through the forest and vomited. 
He eventually made his way back to his motel room in Falcon Lake, then caught a bus back to Winnipeg. He was treated at a hospital for burns to his chest and stomach that later turned into raised sores on a grid-like pattern. And for weeks afterwards, he suffered from diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and weight loss. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's much more of an extreme, I think, version of a close encounter of the second kind. Mm -hmm. But um, I'll include photos of that. I remember I didn't put them in this, I don't think. Um, But I'll post it because you see him laying in bed and like this grid like. Whoa. It's it's crazy. Um. And then if you remember... And he obviously got, like, um, exposed to something because those are some wild symptoms. Yeah, like some sort of radiation or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's other people that have reported, like, seeing a UFO and just, like, the lights, and then they find that they're, like, sunburned on part of their body or something. Wow. Yeah. There's a a bunch of stories, (laughs) but I, I went with one. Um. But then that means we move on to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which Mm -hmm. we already know. Like, if you know the movie, we've already covered the first kind and the second kind. He kind of goes through that leading up to the third one. So a UFO encounter of the third kind is when um, an animated entity is present. And this can include something. Either a humanoid... it says robots. It includes robots in the description. I'm assuming someone oh. has seen a robot. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> and anyone who seems to be an occupant or pilot of a UFO, they're connected in some way. They look however they look. And there's actually subtypes under this one, just to clarify it. And that's if they're, you know, they're observed inside the UFO, if they're observed inside and outside, they're observed near a UFO, but not like going in or out. Um, they're observed, mm-hmm. but there's no UFOs have been seen by the observer, but activity has been reported. And in those same instance of a UFO um, has or has not been reported. Just if you see an alien whatsoever in any capacity, UFOs don't have to be included. That is a close encounter of the third kind. So this story it's actually a bit of a longer story, and I tried to make it super short and condensed and if anyone wants the longer story i can do another like thing on it but um Mm -hmm. this is just wild so on friday september 16th 1994 the republic of zimbabwe's ariel school um which is a private elementary school a beyond weird event took place so okay the event began at approximately 10:15 a.m. While the children who ranged in age from 5 to 12 years old and were of African, Cute. Asian, European descent, um, they were playing in the field adjacent to the school during their mid-morning break on an already scorching day. It was like 91 degrees Fahrenheit that day. So they're just outside playing. The children then claimed that while they were playing, they noticed three silver balls soaring in the sky above the school. These orbs, which mm. quickly caught the attention of the whole group of kids, immediately, or they intermi- intermittently 
flashed red and would disappear in a burst of light and then reappeared in another section of the sky. Whoa. According to these kids, these metallic objects vanished and rematerialized three more times before slowly descending toward the school following a line of um, transmission towers that were nearby. Then one of the silver UFOs dropped lower than the others and landed, or it at least like <gasps> hovered just above their ground, mm-hmm. one or oh the other. Oh my gosh. And this happened in a cluster of gum trees that were about 300 feet away from where they were playing. Whoa. So although the area where the UFO had landed was forbidden to the children due to um, like thorn bushes, poisonous snakes, and spiders. It wasn't fenced off from them. They just knew not to go over what? there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what? That's like I'm assuming they my... just know. <laughs> yeah, that was like in my one of my elementary schools, there was a ditch that we were told, like the soccer field, and then there was like a ditch that went down. And we were told we weren't allowed to be in there because it always had tall grass. And they're like, you know, ticks. You don't want to get yeah. diseases from the ticks. And so no one went down there. Um, so that's like that, but like a hundred times worse. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Uh, holy, holy shit. <laughs> so because it wasn't fenced off, this allowed the like scared but curious kids to begin to approach it. So, like, they start walking towards it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that moment that they're making their way over, this already strange situation kind of turned bizarre. Because at this point, okay. a small humanoid figure wearing black clothing Ooh. and was approximately oh. three feet in height emerged from the top of the object. The witnesses, the kids, claimed that the being suit was... It was black, it was shiny, and it was very tight-fitting. And this, anyone who claims to have seen aliens in clothing says the same thing, that they're wearing clothing, it's just very tight, so it mm. gets mistaken as their skin. They also stated that it had a scrawny neck, a narrow face, thin arms and legs, long black hair, and huge eyes like rugby Ugh. balls. So this being was, like, apparently, it acted like it was unaware of the growing crowd of kids that were coming over to see what was going on. And it was scrambling Mm -hmm. down the rough patch of earth, um, presumably to, like, explore the terrain. And it moved back and forth in the scrub brush like it was, quote, bouncing as if he were on the moon, but not quite so much. So, like, as if gravity was affecting it to some degree. Hmm. So, like, not a person. <laughs> like, like, clearly not a person. You mean, like, it was? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, so then gravity was not affecting him as much. If he was walking like he like was there... on the moon, so he's like, bouncing, like. Right, like, gravity was affecting this being slightly differently than it affects us. Okay. Weird. Yeah. And then at this point, as this little one's, like, making his way down, a second um, being emerged from the top of the craft. He has a buddy. And, right. And the one that was, like, coming (laughs) down the brush was 
like approaching the children. But again, he, he actually seemed as if he was completely unaware that there were kids there. He was just making his way hmm. down. So the younger of these kids, of this big group of kids, were scared. And um, they began screaming because they were so terrified. Mm-hmm. And they were calling out for help. And they, the younger kids, believed that these creatures were demons known as Tokoloshi. Um, mm-hmm. Which I guess is something okay. native to that area. And these demons are notorious for devouring young children. Um, oh, so they so, ran into yeah. the school. <laughs> yeah. And they left the older students. The older students weren't as scared. Um, the younger ones were. So they ran inside. So the first little being was suddenly like they hear the screaming. They suddenly become aware of all these kids that are watching it and like disappeared. <gasps> like it was there and then it was what? gone. And then within seconds, either that creature or one identical to it re-emerged behind the craft so either there was a third one that showed up and we just don't know what happens to that first one or that first one like went yoop, yoop, and it was like hiding Whoa. i don't know and then the two they beings operated. that were now there <laughs> right they then were just kind of staring motionless at the kids that were still there so the kids that had run off, they entered the school and the the hallways were empty because the teachers um, were at a faculty meeting. So they, you know, look around until they find the only available adult who happened to be the, a mother of one of the students who was operating the school's tuck shop, which is a like a snack bar. And oh, okay. this woman, she refused to leave her post unattended. Um, Because she thought it was just like this story. So important. These snacks. These snacks are my duty. I must not leave my post. She thought these kids were making up the story because they wanted to get to all these snacks and sweets and stuff. So she's like, "Mm, no, sorry, kids. And the teachers at the school later admitted that the 62 children were essentially unsupervised in the schoolyard during morning recess. And claimed that they ignored the students' cries. They heard it. They ignored it because they assumed what? it was nothing more than, um, like, playing. Schoolyard playing. Dude. Right? No. <laughs> so, the older wow. students. That, this, okay. This episode is full of very irresponsible adults. <laughs> very much. Jesus Christ. Very much so. So, um. The older students who stayed outside still just like being like, oh, my God, like what's going on? They claim that the creatures communicated with them telepathically. What? Oh, cool. And one of them um, described it and she was like scared of this whole thing. She described Mm -hmm. that they communicated telepathically through their, quote, horrible eyes. Oh, So another student that was later spoken with, um, she uses the pseudonym Elsa. She claimed that she felt horrible for the rest of the day. She was unable to shake the horrific images that had been implanted in her brain by the beings. And she believed that they wanted to convey to the human race a grave warning to stop destroying the planet or face the consequences. (laughs) Yeah, we don't listen to that shit. Maybe one of these was Greta Thornburg. (laughs) (laughs) 
they came in it. Well, she's a time traveler. I'm convinced. Ever since that photo came out, Greta Greta Thunberg. <laughs> yes, she love. Yes. I love her. I. Yeah, she's about us. There's something there. Yeah. So, um, she, this little girl, El- Elsa, um, it says in quotes, the world is going to end, maybe because we don't look after our planet or the air. Like all the trees will go down and there will be no air. People will be dying. Those thoughts came from the man, the man's eyes, which is also interesting. Despite these beings being three feet tall, she saw this being as like it was a man. Probably oh, shorter than yeah, her. So she was. Hmm. Right. She was able to like discern its gender somehow. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was just her putting that on him. But I just. Yeah. It's weird to me that she was like, this is a man and not a creature or the boy or, you know. Mm-hmm. So another interesting child going by a pseudonym of Isabel. Okay. So Isabel. A 10-year-old also expressed just how frightening these creatures were, saying, quote, he was just staring. He was scary. We were trying not to look at him because he was scary. My eyes and feelings went with him. What? And then Elsa's, the going back to Elsa, claimed that the overwhelming sensation she had while staring at the aliens was that, quote, we are doing harm to the earth. Another student also indicated that these um, beings seemed to feel that human technology was quickly growing out of control and suggested, quote, something is going to happen and that we need to be careful of our technology. What's how old are these students again? They're, um, they were five these are to the 12, you five said? to 12. And these are the older students that had this experience. OK, so at 12, would you have like the mind to say all that? Like, I'm just trying to think, like, I would believe it from these little kids telling me because, like, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't think of any of this shit at at that age. No. Like, I was told, like, oh, trees help us, you know, plant trees and this and that. And pretty much we were only ever told about, you know, save the trees and that's it. That's only, like, eco education we ever got. Um, you the know, trees when I was are, are gone. There's no air. People mm-hmm. will be di- like that. Actually, made me when I was reading this. I thought like, were they showing like atomic war? Like not just us not taking care of our environment, but like bringing in the aspect of technology. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and like I said, and what this, year was this again? Uh, let me go back up. It was ninety four. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. And, like, this is, like, a much longer story, but I wanted to get, like, the main points of it just to mm-hmm, show, mm-hmm. like, um, and basically after, after like, this message thing was given, the beings disappeared and the um, object ascended up through the gum trees just, like, super quick and vanished. And the entire event only lasted 15 minutes. But because of how many kids claimed this happened... People wanted mm-hmm. to investigate it years later, and they had um, the kids draw pictures of what they saw. And um, wow. I'll include that too. One of the pictures. It's a little. I. You don't really hear many people talk about aliens with hair, which is yeah, interesting. You usually, think of them as like bald beings. Yeah. So that's interesting. It is kind of creepy the picture, but it's. 
I mean, maybe someday in the future, not when this is still fresh, I'll share the whole story because, yeah. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I just thought that was like super wild. (laughs) That is insane. Wow. Yeah. So that's wow, wow, wow. The third kind, just seeing an alien. Whew. Okay. Um. Now we move on to the fourth kind. Close encounter. The fourth kind is a UFO event in which a human is abducted by a UFO or its occupants. So abduction. Abduction. Got it. So this is another one that I was like, do I want to share this particular story? Because maybe it could make like a cool paranormal story later. But I also feel like it's been shared so many times that Mm -hmm. um, there are other stories that I'd like to expand on. So I'll give a quick version of the story of Travis Walton. Okay. So on November 5th, 1975, Travis Walton was working with a timber stand improvement crew in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona. While riding in a truck. Oh my gosh, there's, okay, there's a town called Snowflake. Yeah. And it's in Arizona of all places. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I know. Um, while riding in a truck with six of his coworkers, they encountered a saucer-shaped object hovering over the ground approximately 110 feet away, and it was making a high-pitched buzz sound. Walton claims that after he left the truck and approached the object, a beam of light suddenly appeared from the craft and knocked him unconscious. Whoa. The other six men were frightened and supposedly panicked and drove away. Walton claimed that he awoke in a hospital-like room being observed by three short, bald creatures. He claimed that he fought with them until a human wearing a helmet led Walton to another room where he blacked out as three other humans put a clear plastic mask over his face. Walton has claimed he remembers nothing else until he found himself walking along a highway five days later with the flying saucer departing above him. Whoa. Travis and his coworkers had to undergo polygraph testing and all of them passed. And. Oh my gosh. This is where it's like, it could, it could actually go into a bigger story, but like, yeah, it was assumed that they all made it up for financial gain. Um, the mm-hmm. story though, in the long run, the story has only been detrimental to their, to their lives. Um, and they've been ridiculed and they've never changed their story. Now there is Got a it. movie based on this that was obviously they added much more drama and more that wasn't a part of the original story called fire in the sky. That sounds familiar. It's a, I, I like the movie, um, but you do have to watch it knowing that they, you know, added bits and pieces. And essentially when Travis Walton went missing, everyone thought that his coworkers killed him. So they were interrogating them, asking, you know, where did he go? What did oh. you do with him? All of them like were like, uh, this sounds crazy, but he was taken by a flying saucer. And they were like, no, you guys fucking killed him. And then when he showed up, mm-hmm. then the cops were like. Oh, okay, so you made this up for fame. I don't know. Got it. But then mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. who makes up a story like that? Yeah. And what I think is kind of telling is there are people who have been 
who have shared stories like this, who in the beginning, their polygraph tests showed that they were telling the truth. And then later, like in Travis's case, like not that long ago, they did another test and it showed that he was lying. But then there are other people Mm. who their initial test shows that they're lying. And then as time goes on, it shows that they're telling the truth. And what I forget what the show was that I watched, they kind of like exposed this guy. They were kind of like, when you tell a lie long enough, you begin to believe it. You start to believe it. But when you're telling the truth and people don't believe you, you start to doubt yourself. Yes. And so that's what I was going to say. Yeah. For me, I like, I remember reading about that, like, oh, he was lying this whole time. And I thought, I don't think so. I think he's been trying to share the story for so long and has so many people not believe him that he probably isn't sure anymore. And I wouldn't blame him. I'd probably feel the exact same way. The further Mm -hmm. you get away from the event, you're not remembering the event. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. So then it becomes easier to doubt yourself. Anyway, um, it's an entertaining movie. The aliens, they make very creepy. They don't do anything with human aliens. Just, yeah. Okay, moving on to the close encounter of the fifth kind. Now, this one I don't have a story for, um, but I am going to talk a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. This okay. is a UFO event that involves direct communication between aliens and humans. And this type of close encounter was named by Stephen M. Greer's C. SETI group and is described as okay. bilateral contact experiences through conscious, voluntary, and proactive human-initiated cooperative communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. That's a lot of adjectives. So pretty it much is. like it's um, it's a lot. The human has to start the conversation. Yeah, and this is where like why I don't have a story necessarily for it is because there are like stories that you can't get much background on of like. Potent, like supposed conversations between like high up officials and aliens, but you know you don't know what's true. And I didn't feel comfortable sharing any story of like what yeah. could be true, what could be completely fictional. Um, but this is like a different take on the communication. So that documentary I mentioned, um, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, Contact Has Begun, I think mm-hmm. it's called. That was done by this. Um, Stephen Greer guy. So if you look into him, he is kind of questionable. I can't deny that. Okay. Um, but like I think anyone who is slightly questionable, sometimes some part of what they're saying may have something to it. Um, he created this, I don't know what you call it. It's like a program. They have these in-person events where they you basically meditate like I'm trying mm-hmm. to make it like super simple, but it's really not simple. You but you essentially meditate and you reach this this point of where it, it becomes almost spiritual. And you're okay. supposed to try and feel out where in space potential UFOs are. And you try okay. to create a connection and let them know. I'm here. This is where I am. I would like contact. And then you almost kind of show them like where you are. Like I'm on earth. I'm in this particular city on earth. 
And what's crazy is these events, they, they always film it and, you know, Mm -hmm. they kind of do this thing. They talk about intention. They sent, they send the intent of contact to these beings. And then UFOs start popping up and it's like, not just one, but it's like, they've had events where it's like, boom, 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 boom. And they're moving around. They're zooming in very stereotypical UFO fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. And they've also had events where like they take photographs and you look back and it almost looks like a being in the background. Oh, wait. It's photos of the person that like sent the intention and then like there's an alien stalking of, like, them in the, the group. Like it's like a group of people cuz his his thing is the more people the more powerful the intention of Oh, got it, got it. Okay. Um and it's just it's wild. It's one of those things that's like are you fucking kidding me? But then also if you can exercise your, you know, system of beliefs, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. And that is interesting. he's been studying this for a very long time. And um, he has made some claims that I'm a little like. He, like he made a claim that um, we have we've made contact with like the government knows about aliens and it's like high up mm-hmm. government. Even the presidents don't know the full story, which we've all kind of mm-hmm. heard that um, and that the government kind of has orchestrated with the entertainment industry to show us this image of if aliens come, they're here to kill us, to mm-hmm. make us afraid because, yeah, I don't know, the government thinks that they're bad and wants to start a war. And he's like, no, they're not bad at all. But then he went on to say something about that someone, was it a president or a prince or somebody was about to release information about aliens and then they were abducted out of their car and was told not to release information but then he said what this person doesn't understand is the government has the same capabilities as aliens and so he wasn't abducted by an alien but by the government because they didn't want him to release right so it's like uh okay (laughs) okay Hmm. (laughs) I, I don't know ask, about like, all that. Okay, who was doing the abducting? <laughs> right. Which then it's like, that gets into this whole other thing of like, so wait, does that, when someone is abducted, do we then have to question who's abducting who? Like, it's just, that was a bit much. Yeah. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the part about expanding our human consciousness and reaching, like, there was some very interesting things there. Um. So that's the fifth kind is communication. And I think it's something you have to look into for yourself (laughs) to get a better Mm -hmm. idea. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's not as clear cut as uh, the other kinds. So. Well, now we know (laughs) all the five kinds. Oh, there's more. (laughs) Collect all five. (laughs) There's two more. Wait, no, there's two more. There's seven oh, okay. kinds. So, um, which the seventh one, I do not have a story for, and you'll probably understand why. But this, the sixth one is when a death of a human or animal is associated with a UFO sighting. Oh, yikes. 
Yes. And this could be considered a more severe example of a second kind encounter. Okay. So this particular story um, takes place on September 27th, 1967 in the San Luis Valley in Colorado. Um, so Harry King noticed that only two of their three horses were outside waiting for grain and water. Thinking this unusual, he headed out to feed them. He claimed later that he had sensed something was wrong, and he was right. Lady, a three-year-old young mare, was nowhere to be seen. Hmm. After waiting until the following morning for her to show up, Harry went searching for the missing horse. After an hour, he spotted something laying in a meadow a quarter mile north of the main ranch house, and it raised the hair on his neck. This is where it gets a little... Not fun. Um, Lady's lady's corpse was missing all the tissue (gasps) from her shoulders to the tip of her nose. Oh, my God. The exposed bones glistening bleached white like they had been in the desert sun for years. The flesh, muscles, tendons, meat, and hide were missing. I just said that. (laughs) (laughs) The, should really drive it home. <laughs> <laughs> the animal lay on its left side facing east in a damp meadow located about one quarter mile west of road 150. Totally get the picture, right? Um, a two lane wow, yeah. heavily traveled dirt road that went north another six miles or so to the Great Sand Dunes National you, Monument. You lost me at laying on our left side. <laughs> That's about all I could absorb from that. This is, they're like... It doesn't make sense, I think, is the gist. So there were no scavenger or predator tracks, no bird droppings or evidence of how the horse had died and then was subsequently disfigured. No evidence whatsoever. Whoa. Over the next month or so, the bones began to turn a rosy pink color and the bleached white appearance faded. This Mm. is the time frame when the most famous photographs of... um, Snippy, this was also what the horse was called, um, when the photographs of Snippy were snapped. (laughs) Snippy snap. (laughs) (laughs) So it had rained off and on during the first week of September, and the ground was still soft and muddy in places. This made ascertaining track evidence relatively easy. Harry King determined that three horses had been running full speed, headed southeast towards the ranch house, and Lady, or um, Snippy, had been, quote, cut from the herd. Okay. Then veered away from the other two, who continued on toward the house. Lady's tracks continued galloping for several hundred yards, by King's estimate, where they, they then inexplicably stopped in a full gallop. Hmm. Okay. So a careful examination... Of the area a week later by Nellie, Harry, Burl, and his friends, the whole crew, they found what appeared to be four burned areas in the ground at 4, 9, 13, and 21 feet away from the carcass to the northwest. All right. Shaped like an upside down question mark, the burn marks in the ground hmm. were found to... I'm going to stop with the numbers. I just, it's too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's just, there's a lot. Can't brain today, okay? So then, <laughs> so then, 
Some, quote, giant horse tracks were punched into the ground and were found among some flattened, appearing Chico bushes located near the body, which is just interesting. Okay. So Nellie called Alamosa County Sheriff uh, Ben Phillips to report the strange death of her horse. Phillips, immediately upon hearing the description, branded the horse's death, quote, a lightning strike and didn't bother to drive out to the scene to investigate. He mm-hmm. later admitted that it was odd that the horse had no evidence of burn marks usually associated with a lightning strike. Nellie and the rest of the family, however, were convinced that something highly irregular had happened to her horse. She was well aware of the several UFO sightings in the weeks prior to her mm. horse's demise. And she and Burl and close friends had experienced sightings that previous spring. The day before the horse disappeared, Agnes King another person, had reported seeing a large bright object flying over the King Ranch corrals that allegedly sheared off the top of one fence post before flying off. Um, Agnes had been doing the dishes in the kitchen during the day when she glanced out the window and saw the silvery object. She didn't have her glasses on, so she wasn't able to get a clear focus, um, focus look at whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in October, two college students from Pueblo, Colorado, um, Phil McFedries and a friend with the help of APRO investigator Don Richmond, photographed mysterious lights over the great sand dunes as they stood on the porch of the Lewis cabin high above the valley floor. They had first noticed them in the Dry Lake area about five miles to the directions to stop it. <laughs> um, we get it. <laughs> the it's like an old person giving directions. <laughs> too, I can handle it to a certain point, like if it's just one example, but like continuously? No, thank you. The lights seemed to hover close to the ground before flying off toward the dunes, passing just mm-hmm. over the snippy site. Um, brilliant white and red, they seemed to the three observers to be under intelligent control. And the photographs appeared in the Pueblo Chieftain along with a story. That is the sixth kind. And that's not the only story. There are a lot of stories of things like that. That is weird. Now, the seventh, isn't it? Not as weird as the seventh kind. Oh, God. The final close encounter. Mm -hmm. Very close encounter. Is the creation of a human alien hybrid either by sexual reproduction I was or by going, artificial scientific methods i was going to say like <laughs> straight up sex with an alien isn't it i knew it <laughs> yeah um <laughs> i tried really hard to find a story even though i knew any story i found would be highly questionable um anything i could find was very much like I, I, I didn't have access to it. It like someone wrote a book and you had to buy the book and there wasn't oh, a digital yeah. copy. So it was like, I don't want to spend 20 something bucks on a book just for, for, for this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so there have been alleged accounts of people who made whoopee with aliens or <laughs> were abducted and came back pregnant. So Oh, my God. But I, I, I couldn't find anything specific. Um, and I feel like this is one that people shouldn't. Okay. It's probably. I yeah. remember <laughs> going down a UFO like rabbit hole, research rabbit hole one time. And I did find mm-hmm. a series of 
YouTube videos by this guy who had an encounter of the seventh kind. And mm-hmm. he speaks at many, many conventions. And Do God, I wish I had saved his pictures information. Pictures of a daughter. Yeah. Like a blonde daughter. Exactly. You like seen it, it was, too? I was watching something. I feel like they finally debunked it, but I can't I can't remember the circumstances. So okay. I can't say for sure. Okay. But yeah, this guy, I forget what his name is. Maybe y'all have seen it too, but he basically says says that he was like forced to have sex. I mean, well, it didn't mm-hmm. seem very forced, but like he was put in a situation where he had sex with a female alien and then um she they had a daughter and that he saw the daughter show up to one of these like conventions or conferences and she does look like odd in this photo who knows like might be photoshopped or whatever um but that I think she approached is, him and he, said like i am your baby yeah i can't remember if this was him stam romanek i know i've heard his name he claims that he's fathered um alien human hybrids but he's wow. also a convicted sex offender for child pornography crimes so ew ew yeah i don't um, i'll look into it more but i do remember that but then i remember dismissing it because i I forget what the fuck i was watching um but there are stories there's stories out there just not easily googleable googleable ones interesting time to be alive with aliens but that's it those are all of the close encounters um and i seriously hope it um leads to some stories about aliens from you all oh yeah send it in guys even just like i think i saw a ufo once this is what it looked like like i want to hear it i know i've seen i've seen ufos Mm -hmm. i've seen uh three different ones each one looked different um so i want to hear stories from people of what they saw because i want to compare that'd be cool Honestly, anything that you cannot explain yeah. that you saw or experienced, like, send it in. That is wild. Uh, wow. I'm just, like, thinking, like, I'm gonna, I'm probably going to go down another research rabbit hole about UFOs after this. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Yeah, if you want, UFOs if you do have wild. those, if you do have those stories, any um, personal stories, experiences, whatnot that you what guys want to send in. Uh, we've just had our listener stories, um, so we have you have a month to get into the next episode. But if you'd like to contribute a story, um, guys, just email it into thenewwitches at gmail.com or go to our website, thenewwitches.com, and go to our contact page, and we have a submission form there. And now we've also added a Google Voice number where you can also like leave call us a record yeah call us you can call us say hi leave a recording of your story in the voicemails and we'll use the audio recording um to feature in the episode or if you prefer like people you can just like record you know people have that memo app on their phone you can record it and then email that file in um Mm -hmm. but yeah if you like to call in with a question too or or a story it's 707-559- eight one 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 so please do please do absolutely that's so cool i love how you broke down all those different i didn't know there were so many kinds because you hear like of the third kind blah 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 blah. i didn't know there were seven kinds so that's cool and the whole intention thing to me was wild yeah that was really cool that's i still like i said that guy 
super questionable things when I started watching the documentary, mm-hmm. Graham was kind of like, eh, I don't like this guy. So I like saved to watch it um, another time. But like mm-hmm. it's it's the documentary is put into three parts. So if you don't want the real wild stuff, just skip the first part and go to the second. <laughs> okay. Um, I forget how far in it is. And that's where they get into like the intent stuff and they go into more like a spiritual side kind of mm-hmm. talking about the mind and these like there's these lamps where you look at the lamp and you tell it what color you want it to be and it turns that color. And that's like a science thing they're doing right now. Interesting. Like an actual okay. science thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking all these like, different experiments that people are mm-hmm. doing with the the mind and consciousness. Yeah. Very interesting. I was just thinking like tacking on more contacts, kinds of contact. Um like number mm-hmm. eight, like of the of the eighth kind would probably be like you are the alien trapped in <laughs> trapped in a human body. Like it just started Taking me down the whole thought of um, the Heaven's Gate cult. I feel like that would be like, oh, the eighth kind. You are the alien. (laughs) Right? Or, you know, there are people who believe that they are reincarnated, but they were aliens before. Mm -hmm. And now they're human. Interesting. All very, very interesting. interesting. The universe is a wild and scary place. In an unknown place, like there's so much we do not know. So that is very exciting. Right. But I got to say, after watching that, I felt so much more comfortable with like, okay, if aliens are real, this guy's basically saying like, they're totally fine. They're nice. Hmm. There's like this one type of alien that's called a master healer. Oh. He like, this guy was formerly deaf and now he's not deaf at all. Whoa. It's It's wild. I'm, it's super wild. (laughs) The title of this episode should just be wild. <laughs> like, guys, it gets wild. <laughs> That's just the title of the episode. Um, Absolutely. Man. Oh. Well, between Cannibal Kathy and contacts of the <laughs> numerous kinds, um, this has been. Yep. Wow. What an episode. Thanks so much for listening to us, y'all. I'm Maria. I'm Laura. And you've been listening to The New Witches. If you'd like to follow us on social media, it's at The New Witches on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Follow us there. Um, And if you'd like to support the show, uh, click like or follow. Um, Even better, if you comment on our posts, um, leave us a review. We often forget to say that in our outro. Leave us a review. It obviously helps our rankings and our exposure for more people to find our podcast and listen to these wild ass stories and the next the best way really to support us is to be a patreon member so go to patreon.com slash the new witches you can sign up for our various tiers um and you can support the show on a monthly basis and we give you exclusive member benefits as a thank you for your generosity you get private readings with laura exclusive um monthly episodes bonus episodes as well as extended cuts of creepy stories with laura uh blog posts um you also get added to our private facebook community and our close friends list on instagram so you get to see exclusive story content content there as well um lastly just like we said a little earlier the listener episodes that happens every 13th of the month so if you have a story that you'd like to send in whether it's 
some sort of UFO alien contact story or it's witchy or it's paranormal or it's something you just can't explain um, or maybe you have a question. Uh, anything really just send it in again that's um, thenewwitches.com go to our contact page email in your typed story or your audio file of you telling your story or question to thenewwitches at gmail.com and lastly that google voice number if you'd like to leave us a voicemail is 707-559-8111 thank you so much y'all we'll see you next week and yeah stay witchy keep it creepy